Everything old is new again. America's entertainment pop culture talk show. It may well possess a rudimentary intelligence. I'm trying to think, but nothing happens. Felt a great disturbance in the force. Hello, I'm Mr. Ray. Come on, Mark, like a job for me. Meet me. Where's the goodies? Leave the gun. Take the cannoli. I bet you wouldn't have done anything like this if Mom and Dad were here. You filthy criminal. Excuse me while I whip this out. Go ahead. Make my day. Here are your hosts, Douglas Viviani and Dick. David Cohen. Because that is a gentleman that's been on our show a number of times talking about Egypt. He's a great uh, Egyptologist and really made that subject come alive for us, uh, Dr. Breyer. And Dr. Weller, we, this um, gentleman, uh, Dr. Breyer, is a tremendous Egyptologist. He really knows Egypt in and out as a society and is a lot of fun, brings it alive for the great courses. And that's how I got to learn him and, and, and others. Uh, well, let me give a shout out to Dr. Bob Breyer because that guy's a legend. Amazing. Uh, you know what I love this in our fantasy, David and I were talking about uh, these are our, our fantasies and because we were thinking about what about dr Breyer debating dr weller about which is the uh, s- simple question the best civilization uh, the, the romans or, or the egyptians <laughs> uh, you know look man egypt influenced greece for sure archaic sculpture we know that man greece influenced rome so you, you can't beat egypt Ah, welcome to Everything Old is New Again. How about that for us nerds? That would have been the Super Bowl to have Dr. Breyer against Dr. Weller arguing about those things. Uh, we're here, unfortunately, sans David Cohen, but uh, he'll be back next week. But that's okay, because we have a guest host this week uh, that we just mentioned, Bob Breyer, who's a senior research fellow at Long Island University, uh, LIU Post and has researched, published, lectured on all aspects of ancient Egypt, from the history of ancient Egypt to hieroglyphics, the pyramids, King Tut, the obelisks, mummies, and more. In 1994, Dr. Breyer and a colleague, Ronald Wade, for the first time in 2,000 years, mummified a human cadaver using ancient Egyptian tech techniques and earned the nickname Mr. Mummy. He's been on National Geographic TV, host of several TV programs in the TLC network, and been featured in Archaeology Magazine, New York Times, CNN, 60 Minutes, 2020, and of course, Everything Old is New Again. Also, the teaching company, which is the thegreatcourses.com, have some wonderful lectures that you can purchase about ancient Egypt and the pharaohs. He's written books, including Cleopatra's Needles, Tutankhamun, the ancient Egyptians, Egyptomania, and his latest offering is called the Luxor Obelisk and its Voyage to Paris, a book that he translated with a, a colleague, Colette Sumner, which he'll be talking about today. Again, that book is The Luxor Obelisk and its Voyage to Paris. I'm telling you, it's a great read. Welcome to Everything Old is New Again, Dr. Bob Breyer. Hey, man. Good to be back. How'd you like that? We did actually mention you to Dr. Peter Weller, RoboCop himself, who's, who's uh, you know, got, received his PhD. We just uh, we had a, a great time mentioning you and talking about that <laughs> with him. And uh, how would that debate have gone? He even uh, kind of um, backed away from the debate right off the bat, uh, acknowledging that Egypt and yourself would have won that hands down. Uh, and tell us a little bit why in, in some way, you think. I, I think I think he's right. I mean, he, he's, I have an unfair advantage. Uh, I've got Egypt. He's got Rome. I've got a machine gun and he's got a pop gun. Right. Um, you know, 
before before Egypt, I'm mean, gonna give you an example with Rome. When Cleopatra, the last ruler of Egypt, uh, the, the the last queen of Egypt was ruling, um, Rome was basically mud brick houses. Um, it was it was Egypt that that really showed Rome how to build grandly. I mean, it was when when Cleopatra, you know, takes Caesar on his trip up and down the Nile, and Mark Anthony sees it that Rome really learns what big is. Um, so you know, Egypt was really just way ahead of everybody, but. Uh, but I don't mean to demean to, to Rome. It was a great culture. Uh, well, you should keep studying it. It's great stuff. But uh, there's nothing like Egypt. And, and also just for time, and that's not everything, but just for time, uh, let's think about it. Egypt was around, you know, the, the time frame better than I, but about, what, 5,000 years? And Rome approximately, let's call it 12, 1,200 years? Yeah, I mean, 3,000 years before Rome. Egypt was really building pyramids, practically. You know, no, right? No, it's 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 really quite a difference. It is. Now there is an ancient Egyptian maxim that says to say the name of the dead is to make him live again, and uh, I would say that you're kind of lending that maxim to a gentleman by the name of, and again, here we go with the pronunciation, the uh, Apollinaire Libas. And yeah, Labah. Uh, there we go, Labah. Thank you. Uh, and uh, and we make his story uh, come alive uh, in in this um, in this newest in this newest work of yours. Why do you want to uh, sort of have him live again? Yeah, I'll tell you. You're right. By the way, that is the expression of the uh, ancient Egyptians to say the name of the dead is to make them live again. And um, even you know, on the outside of their tombs, on the outside of their tombs, sometimes they would carve. For people walking by, it says, oh, passerby, stop for a moment and read my name. It costs you nothing. Oh, wow. And the idea was to say the name of the dead would to make them live again. Um, so, yes, they really believed it. Now, the reason I was interested in Labah, Paulina Labah, goes back to a book I wrote about, I guess, maybe four years ago, five years ago. I'm not sure when I was on the show last, because I think we were talking about that book. It was Cleopatra's Needles. Yes, we certainly um, were. Two th that, well, about, that came out in 2016, but I think you were on probably around uh, 18, I'm going to say. Okay, okay. Now, what, what stirred me you know, to get Labar going in, in, in everybody's mind was I was writing this book, Cleopatra's Needles, which is about three obelisks, the three obelisks that left Egypt in the 19th century, to go to Paris, London, and New York. One to Paris, one to London, one to New York. Now, I, I knew something about the obelisks. I'm an obelisk freak. I, I love obelisks. I think they're fabulous. They're, I think they're actually better than the pyramids. So I'm writing this book about obelisks, and I knew the story about the London one pretty well. Um, I knew the one about the New York one pretty well. I'm also a New Yorker. Um, so I knew that one pretty well. But when I started reading the one about the parrot, the Paris, I started reading the original version of what happened by Labah, the guy I'm sort of uh, in love with, um, I was reading this thing about Labah. I said, my God, nobody knows this story, and it's incredible. And what happened to poor Labah, the reason he was sort of forgotten from history, is that he moved this first. He was the first one to move the obelisk in the 19th century. And he wrote the book about it, and it was published by a government printing office in a small edition in 1838, and it disappeared and was never translated. So nobody knew the details. And I'm reading this for the first time because I'm writing Cleopatra's Needles, all about the three of them. I say, wow, what a guy, what a story. And I decided I just have to translate this thing. So that's why I, I sort of think Labar should be, you know, everybody should read it. You know, and 
you know, I can say this because it's not my book. I didn't write it. I'm merely the translator. It's a wonderful book. Everybody should get it and read it. And it's not my book. It's Labaz's book, really. And it really translates well. It translates like an adventure story. It's got science in it. It has uh, the a little bit of ancient Egypt. What is, you know, we'll go through it a little bit here, but what is on the obelisk? Why is it so important to him? It's like a techie book. You can get in there. It's even got... <clears throat> Excuse me. It even has some equations there. It's got pictures of of what went on, so it comes alive. So it really it does read like a modern day, um, you know. It's almost it's not fiction. I can't say that, but it reads like it reads like an adventure. So it's it's almost like it was perfectly, you know, uh, uh, what would you say would be perfect for a movie kind of a thing. Yes, yes, abs- absolutely. I'm glad you liked it, Douglas, and I, I can tell you really liked it, which is great. Um, I think everybody will. Um, it, it is an adventure story. I mean, it's, it's a little bit Indiana Jones. It's a little bit this. It's a little bit that. And I think if I had the money, if I had the money for a feature film, I'd make moving the Paris obelisk. I think it would be just great. <laughs> See that? Yeah, I agree with you. There's so much to it. We'll get into a lot of it. But let's, in the next two minutes, and, and this is not fair, but we'll continue the next section. But this obelisk itself is 250 tons. He moved it from Egypt to France basically on the water after he achieved quite a bit of things on land. Why did he do this? Ah, in the 19th century, Egypt was ruled by a guy named Muhammad Ali, and he was trying to move them into the 19th century. They were, they were somewhat backward, and he was trying to get Western culture to help him modernize Egypt. And the way he was giving them their perks to help him was he was giving away obelisks. And he gave away this obelisk to France to, as, as a thank you for helping us modernize the sanitation system, the this, the that. And Lebas was given the job of schlepping it over to Paris. Wow, that's amazing. That's interesting. And, and it's, 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 I guess it was a good move. I, I will talk about that a little bit. A good move for them to, to, to help the country as a whole, but also not a great move if you really think about it, because uh, little by little, all of Egypt become disman- became dismantled uh, over time, right? It, yeah, you're right. There's, there's an ethical question there, and we can we can discuss it after the break, because I think it's an interesting ethical question. It's not obvious, right. but it's an interesting one. You're right. All right. We will leave that as a as sort of a, a hanger there, and we will be back to discuss this and more with every uh, on Everything Old is New Again with uh, Dr. Bob Breyer. Come on back. These days, the news is full of teen suicide, drug and alcohol abuse, bullying. It's depressing and concerning, but there is hope. WWE Intercontinental Champion Mark Merrow. Champion Choice is a live presentation that empowers students to make positive choices and live their best life. I teach students how to live a drug-free life, prevent bullying, avoid peer pressure, and keep negative people out of their lives. We are defined by our choices. There is hope. To schedule a Champion of Choices presentation for your school or organization, visit thinkpaws.org. That's thinkpaws.org. You're listening to Everything Old is New Again, America's entertainment pop culture talk show with Douglas Viviani and David Cohen. You're not pleased to see me here. I am great pharaoh, but now I have important things to do. So Ramses tells me. Huh? More important things than obeying my orders? You ordered me to finish this city. There is the obelisk of your jubilee. Baka, 
Put a thousand slaves to removing the sand until the stone settles to its base. There we go. Charlton Heston himself on uh, and in the Ten Commandments. We're here with Dr. Bob Breyer talking about his latest, The Luxor Obelisk and its voyage to Paris. Tremendous uh, book that was he translated. He's got many other books that I'm telling you, if you're interested in Egypt, and even if you're not, this will make you interested in Egypt. Uh, Cleopatra's Needles, the... Great Pyramid, and really is called the secrets of the Great Pyramid. How did they make them? How about Tutankhamun? There's a great book about the um, uh, the murder of Tutankhamun, on, and how did that occur, possibly? The Ancient Egyptians, A Day in the Life, and Egyptomania, sort of like Beatlemania before, it, uh, before Beatlemania. There was uh, an Egyptmania back in the 1920s and 30s, and we'll, you see that in the Abbott Costello movies and all that and more. Uh, we're here again with Dr. Breyer. Dr. Breyer, we left off talking about the possible ethical consideration of giving away as a reward and an enticement and a thank you part of your uh, well the obelisks uh, of Egypt which will be part of your history to other countries maybe we'll t- pick that up a little bit if you don't mind sure now the ruler as I said was Muhammad Ali and he was really an Albanian he was ruling Egypt right Egypt didn't have freedom then they were under the Ottoman Empire the Turks were really controlling it so to Muhammad Ali the Egyptian monuments weren't really his patrimony It wasn't his heritage. He didn't care. And he frankly said about obelisk, it's just a stone. Let them have it if they want it. So he was willing to give away these obelisks to gain the favor of Western powers, of of America, of France, and of England. Now, there's a lot of debate about this, about should we give these things back? You know, should everything go back to Egypt? And, And it's an ethical question, I think, in some ways. I'm not one of the Egyptologists who says everything should go back to Egypt, because Egypt has duplicates of many things. They have a thousand different statues like this one. Why not let one go out as an ambassador? And I think that if things were obtained from Egypt legally, if the Egyptian government gave it, if it was purchased from them, that kind of thing, I think it's fine in general, in general, for it to stay out of the country. Well, also one object, one object, Douglas, that I want to go back, I would love to see go back. It won't happen is the Luxor obelisk. Now, the reason that I, I say that one, I'd love to see it back. And Zahi Hawass and I have had discussions about this. He was the director of antiquities for them, is that, as you know, obelisks used to come in pairs, always in pairs. And they were erected in front of temples right at the gateway, right at the entrance. And now Luxor Temple only has one obelisk. And there is no temple in all of Egypt that has both its obelisks. And I would love for the Luxor obelisk to go back, be in place, and then people could see it as it was 3,000 years ago or 2,000 years ago. That's so interesting, yes, because uh, that would give certainly the feel of what it's like. It's like what looking at a baseball game or a baseball field or Yankee Stadium, I don't know, a thousand years from now and, and only seeing the, you know, the infield and not seeing the outfield or, or something yes, like that. Yes. It's not the whole, you're not getting the whole impression no. of what this is and, and the majesty of it because how, these are like, what, four or five hundred feet tall? How tall are these? No, no, no. They're, they're shorter. Oh. They're a hundred feet tall. Okay. At max, max. A hundred feet tall, but they're pretty impressive. Let me tell you, because they're, they're thin. They're a single piece of stone. You know, they're not built. They're carved out of a single piece of stone. And they're not even carved out, literally. They're pounded out. The the Egyptians didn't have chisels that were hard enough for granite, which is what all the obelisks are made of. So they had to take an even harder stone called dolerite and literally pound them out of the quarry. I mean, amazing. Yeah, they had this huge quarry. They pounded it out and and then... 
and then somehow they they transported this right the whole thing all at once to yes. the, whatever location they were taking it to. So yeah. that's a, an amazing feat unto itself. Uh, also, I, I just my two cents on that from the outside looking in. You know, having the obelisks and um, and and the other visitations of King Tut's uh, uh, you know uh, tomb and and the, what they found the tomb and in, in, in the museum the museums that go around uh, the country and, and different countries is something that does make this come alive for people. Let's say walking in New York or visiting New York and I don't know that if you're visiting New York, you're actually always going to go to Egypt just to see uh, something like this if you're, you know, a family walking around. So so it really does bring Egypt to us, uh, is what you're saying, as an ambassador. So it does make it does kind of make sense to keep it as long as it was legal to foster the study and interest in ancient Egypt, I guess, is what we're saying. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, people people are fascinated by Egypt. They go to a museum, they see a wonderful collection of Egyptian art, and then they say, wow, we got to go to Egypt. Or if you're walking in Central Park and you see the obelisk there, it, it stands in Central Park, New York Central Park, and you see, you say, wow, this is fabulous. Let's go to Egypt. So I think it's a, a win-win situation in a way for Egypt. And the one we're talking about was built approximately 1290 B.C., which means it's approximately, if I'm right, about 3,300 years old. What exactly. other piece of history do we have? Well, there's a few others. They all seem to be ancient Egyptian, of course, that are of, right. that, are of that age. That's amazing. And there's writing on it that, uh, and we'll get to the writing in a few seconds, but that you can read and see, generally speaking, what would they write on the obelisks and why? Were they sort of like the Wikipedia of the day? Sure. No, they weren't, actually. Um, the, 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 the disappointing aspect, and there's very few disappointing aspects to obelisks, is that there's nothing interesting on the obelisks, usually. What they are is basically the names of the king and saying what a great guy he was for erecting this monument. So in other words, when the king builds a temple, he'll put two of these obelisks in front and say, I'm Ramses the Great, and I built this fabulous thing. So they're usually just the titles of the king and saying, look how great I am. So maybe it's the the, the doorknob, so to speak, or the opening door where you go in to the temple, because of course many of the temples would then have the stories and the history, I guess. Oh, yeah. You know? Right. All the, the stories of the pharaohs, his victories, his battles, all of that are on the walls of the temple. All right, great. We're talking about the Luxor Obelisk and its voyage to Paris. Is it, I guess, just going to ask you this question. It's an odd one. They say that they, they carefully positioned these obelisks so that the first and the last light of the day would touch their peaks to honor the sun god. Does that make sense to you? Is that something they did or am I well, wrong? That's pretty good. I mean, you know, you, you would... It wasn't exactly that way, but it was pretty close. It, they're always associated with the sun. Every every obelisk is, is, in a sense, a sun monument, a solar monument, because they, of course, worship the sun, you know, so it's associated with the sun, certainly. And when they repositioned them, and we'll get into the story of actually doing that in a moment, but um, yeah. did they take that into consideration at all? Was that, you know, did they have to angle it in a certain way? No. Or no? No. No, it was never taken into consideration. Usually repositioning the obelisk in the 19th century when London... Paris and New York got their, got their obelisk. Usually it was a political decision. It was like, who's going to get the best benefit? Who's going to get the most publicity? So it's usually just put in a place which is kind of good looking and that was it. And they didn't worry about ancient orientation or anything like that. All right. Now these are, like you said, a hundred uh, feet and more tall. Uh, right. The base, what, maybe you could tell us what the base of it is in terms of how wide they are. And then a better question and something I'd love to understand is how come they're never falling over? Ah, 
Very good. Well, the base is only not much, only about nine feet, eight feet. You know, it's not a not a huge base. It's not like a pyramid. It's it's pretty much a shaft that goes straight up. Well, not quite straight. It tapers very slightly. You can barely see it with the eye, but it, they taper to the top, and then there's a little pyramid on top of every one. Um, now, the reason they don't fall over, and this is something that just blows me away. I mean, it's, I think this is why I say, in some extent, the engineering that goes into an obelisk is better than a pyramid. Um, the only thing holding an obelisk on its base, on its pedestal, is gravity. There's no pins holding it there. There's no cement. It's just constructed so perfectly, so symmetrically, that it balances. And it's marvelous. That's amazing. Try to do that with a pencil. Try to do that with anything right, to get right. it to balance with a little bit of a base and, it, and that it goes, you know, way up in the air. It's unbelievable. That have, have any, are you aware of any of them? that have, I mean, this is a crazy question, but that have fallen over that you're aware of? Well, they, they've, they've been pulled down. When foreign right. invaders came into Egypt, they, they fell down. But I don't know of any that fell and broke while, you know, in ancient Egyptian times by, by accident. No. Well, that's absolutely you know, the one amazing. thing where you may find a, an error with an obelisk is I've always wondered, you know, the obelisk, when they got them from the quarry at Aswan, all the obelisks come from the same quarry in the south of Egypt at Aswan. That's where the granite is. They brought them by barge. They, they, they had a barge and they would bring it on a barge. And I wonder if some ever sank. And if in the, in the Nile somewhere, there's a couple obelisks. That would be interesting. And that's another question. People always talk about the Nile. And, and maybe some of us, we don't really realize the significance uh, of the Nile. We hear about the significance of the Nile when you study ancient Egypt. But there's something. That was basically their highway. Without the, the Nile, would you think they'd be able to ever have constructed all of these things that they did construct, especially the obelisk where they had to move uh, the items so far? You know, without the Nile, there wouldn't have been an Egypt. There was a, a Greek tourist, Herodotus was his name, who went into Egypt and, and he said, Egypt is the gift of the Nile. The, the, the Egyptians needed the Nile for irrigating their lands to grow enough food to eat. I mean, the thing that made Egypt great was that it had more crops. They could grow more crops than they needed. So they were doing very well. They could, they could trade crops for other products. They could do this. They could have a standing army. They could feed an army. So the Nile was, was the whole name of the game for Egypt, really was. And, and certainly they couldn't have built their things without the Nile. And the Nile was fresh water then is what we're saying, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. It was their drinking water. It was their, you know, their, their irrigation water. It was their highway. It was everything. And that's a whole other topic to, yeah. to the ones that are not uh, initiated as to how the heck this Nile even came into existence. But we'll, we'll save that for another day unless you know a little bit about that. We could just do something. Well, I'll tell you one interesting thing I've always thought about, Douglas. You know how very often people think of Egypt as a desert country, in a sense, with people going on camels and riding off into the desert and all that? It's not true for ancient Egypt. First of all, the Egyptians didn't have a camel. They, they didn't have the camel. That was introduced much later in their civilization. Um, the, the, the real beast of burden they had was a donkey. That was it. But the, the Egyptians didn't go into the desert in general. They were afraid of the desert. So they stayed very close to the Nile. Everyone lived right along the Nile. So they weren't even desert people. They were just Nile huggers. And we're going to have to hug our sponsors here for a moment. We'll be back right at this. Everything all is new again with Dr. Bob Breyer.
You're listening to Everything Old is New Again, America's entertainment pop culture talk show with Douglas Viviani and David Cohen. And we're back here with Dr. Bob Breyer and Everything Old is New Again, talking ancient Egypt, the obelisks, and more. And we're just talking about the Nile there and how the ancient Egyptians were Nile huggers. And and that was uh, flush with, with trees and, and, uh, and flowers and, and I don't know if they had grass, but all uh, foliage all over, correct? Yes, absolutely. Up and down the Nile. And I think it amazed foreigners when they if they were coming into Egypt through the desert, crossing this desert. And then all of a sudden you see green. It was incredible. Yeah, that that had to be some amazing sight uh, to see, especially knowing if you then take your army or whatever uh, a little ways out and see juxtaposed right to the the desert, you know, that had to be an amazing uh, sight because it, it's two different worlds right next to each other. Yeah, there was, there was a foreign invader named Cambyses who brought his army into Egypt. And then they marched across the desert to the oasis of Siwa and they were never seen again. Like 20,000 guys disappeared in the desert. Wow. And there were Egyptologists still looking for them. Wow, because they probably didn't know what they were getting themselves into and thought the oh. next uh, Nile was right around the corner, maybe. I mean, who knows what they were thinking, right? Let, let yeah. me ask you this. Yeah. What would be the significance of France, you know, London, England, and, and America, and, and anywhere else to have an obelisk given to them, why would a country want it, and why would they think it would be something that is a wonderful gift from Egypt? Yeah, I think part of it was a culture war. It really showed that you were a cultured civilization. You have an object from antiquity. I mean, in the 19th century, everybody was fascinated with antiquity and how old Greece was and this and that. And then if you had an obelisk from Egypt, that really gave even increased status to your city. So only, you know, if you think about the cities around the world, very few cities have obelisks, right? You have you have Rome also has a, has a big one, you know, but but otherwise London, Paris, you know, in New York, it's only the few big cities. And that's it. And of course, Washington has one, but that's a totally different. That was made uh, by right. us. 555 feet tall, the tallest obelisk in the world, made in 1884. But uh, certainly in developing and building the Washington Monument, uh, there, of course, was a nod and an acknowledgement to the power of uh the the obelisk itself and the engineering, I presume, when they and if you know this but or not, but when when they developed and built the Washington Monument. Yeah, um, actually, I'm gonna I'm I'm a stickler on this. I claim this is my claim uh, that the Washington Monument isn't an obelisk because it's not a single piece of stone. It's a building made out of blocks of stone, and you can go up it. It's it's hollow inside. All of this, um, it's it's really a building in the shape of an obelisk, and I think the reason. They're choosing an Egyptian shape, an Egyptian icon, is that most of American politicians in those days were Masons, the secret fraternal order of the Masons. And they traced their lineage back to ancient Egypt. So it was a kind of, you know, wink and a nod to the Masons also to build an an ancient Egyptian, you know, obelisk in in, in Washington, D.C. And that's why, by the way, we we have a pyramid on the dollar bill, you know, on the back of the dollar bill is a pyramid. Yeah, that's amazing. That's that's so interesting, and uh, what a uh, a thought process to go through and to acknowledge uh, all all these years later to try to at least build something that resembled and honored something that was at that point now you know three and four thousand years old. Right. 
Think of think what what do we do today to honor someone and and a civilization that old, uh, you know, or any other civilization? I should say we don't really do anything to honor. Uh, the, let's just say the next civilization, I guess, would be Greek, and, and then and then the Romans um, mm-hmm. on the Western side. Uh, so you know, we really uh, do honor. Uh, what you're talking about, the the if you will, the Cleopatra's needles. Now, Cleopatra's needles is a name that I think was used for this Luxor obelisk and the other two. I'm kind of confused about that. And again, sure. you wrote the book. Just a little plug: Cleopatra's needles, the lost obelisk of Egypt, and that's a separate and different book. Uh, right. Wonderful book. That's sort of maybe a a bookend to this one, which is the Luxor obelisk and its voyage to Paris. Yeah, I think um, the, the the phrase Cleopatra's needles, of course, is a is a modern one, and it's kind of a uh, a nod to Cleopatra, the last ruler. She really didn't erect any obelisks, as far as we know. She she moved a couple, um, but but I think um, it's just a nod to the last ruler. Yeah. Okay, so but it would it, it does refer to all three of them, I guess, is what you're saying. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. Now, uh, with respect to that, uh, France was given. I believe, uh, maybe I'm wrong about this, but I read, this is a great book, and I read it, and there's so much information, I may have got a little confused, and that's why I'm great to have you on the show. I think there were three obelisks that were given uh, to France, and that uh, this gentleman, Labat, said, uh, and others said, I mean, one was in Alexandria, and and the two obelisks in Luxor, I think, were were given to France, and he said, hey, wait a minute, we can't, this is crazy, I'm lucky I get one of these over there. You're absolutely right. You know, I'm glad you pointed that out, Douglas, because one of the things that I was amazed at when I was reading Apollonaire Labat's account of moving the obelisk was that France was given three um, at one time. You know, they, they owned actually three obelisks. Um, you know, e- Egypt was so eager to curry favor with France that they gave France both obelisks in front of Luxor Temple, which was in the south, and one of the obelisks, which was standing at Alexandria, Egypt, on the coast. Um, so they were given three. And then Labat knew, no, no, this isn't going to work. Uh, this is a big job moving one. As a matter of fact, you know, the, the, the French sent a ship to get the Alexandria one. And they, and, and they couldn't do it. They, could, they looked at it. They didn't have enough wood to get it down. And they just sailed back home. But Labat goes all the way down to Luxor. He's going up the Nile. He's got to go up the Nile to get there. And he's going all the way up the Nile. And he's got he's got two obelisks in front of him, and he knows he's only bringing one home. There's no way. And and the one he picks is the one on the right, because his Frenchman countryman Champollion, who had deciphered hieroglyphs, said, "Take the one on the right; it's in better shape." Is that something? And we'll get to that one on the right in a moment. I wanted yeah. to just point out how interesting. Also, they named the ships. One was, I think, the, again, I, I'm talking to the expert here, so I hate to pre- pre- present myself as if I'm an expert in this. But I'm going to throw out what I learned from the book anyway. That one was the, called the Luxor, which was a successful ship. And we'll talk about what they had to do with that ship shortly. And uh, another one, I think the one you're talking about was called the Sphinx. Is that correct? Well, actually, yes. The, the, the one the one was a steamship that was going to tow the Luxor. So, yes, one was a, they, they named them. And as a matter of fact, the one that was sent to take the um, Alexandria obelisk home was named the Dromedaire, the camel. There you uh, go. So, so they, they named them all appropriately. So they were creative about that. That's what, you know, and, and I presume that they create, well, I don't know, that they create these ships just for this voyage. 
the Luxor ship was created just, it was designed just to bring back an obelisk. Okay. Yeah. Now, now, there were three given, as we said, to France. Was that a nod in any way to Napoleon in any way? To, was, was Napoleon's you know, no, achievements? No, Napoleon was long gone. Yeah. No, but Napoleon was it... was, Napoleon's long gone. I don't think it's at all a nod to Napoleon, though Napoleon is one of the first Frenchmen to have the idea of bringing an obelisk home. He thought when he went to Egypt in 1798, they were going to conquer Egypt and do great things. He lost, right, right. <laughs> and he had to go home pretty quickly, but but he thought they could bring an obelisk home. So he's the first to have the idea of it. But um, it, I think it was really just trying to say, thank you, France, for helping us with our sanitation, with our educational system, with this and that. Here's three obelisks. <laughs> okay, so it wasn't a nod to Napoleon saying thanks for, for no. opening the world up to our civilization. And because, and, from what I understand, pretty much, because the Romans, of course, but modern, I'll call it modern civilization from, let's call it the late 1700s on, uh, would not have been so enthralled with ancient Egypt without Napoleon in some ways. I'm sure someone else would have come later on, but he was the one that was the spearhead of, hey, look at this civilization. Let's figure out what's going on here. This is amazing. He brought artisans and and, and, and technicians and, and scientists and, and all to figure out what this is all about, right? Yes, that's right, Douglas. When, 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 when Napoleon went to Egypt, he brought with him a whole mini army, a, a, a corps of savants, as they call them, scientists. And these guys were supposed to describe all of Egypt for the Western world. They were going to come back and tell the Western world what Egypt really was like. And they did it. When they got back, it took them 20 years, but they published one of the largest works ever published in the history of the publishing was called the Description de l'Egypte, which was the description of Egypt. And they had 850 huge drawings of the temples and of the animals and of this and that. So that's how Europe learned about Egypt, and that's what set off the first wave of Egyptomania. There we go, and that's the name of another book that Dr. Bob Breyer <laughs> has written, Egyptomania. These are great books, great adventures, great information, looking into a civilization. Talk about time traveling. We really can time travel when we talk about ancient Egypt, maybe more than any other civilization, uh, because so much is still left standing, so much has been written about it in their own uh, temples and and in the pyramids and so forth, so that we can we, we have so much uh, directly from their mouths about their civilization. And speaking of which, directly from the mouth of the translator of the Luxor Obelisk and its voyage to Paris, Dr. Bob Breyer. We will be back on Everything Old is New Again to continue talking about this and more fascinating subject. Let's talk about a little bit about obstacles that uh, Labah overcame and how do you move this thing that's 250 tons? Even today, how do you move something like that? They did it way back when in the early 1800s. We'll uh, investigate that right after this. Everything Old is New Again. Where will we find the mummy? Don't worry, the mummy will find you. <laughs> You'll howl as you follow Bud and Lou in a strange land where exotic dancers perform ancient rituals. <laughs> You'll scream at this mystic world of mad magic. This is Everything Old is New Again, America's entertainment pop culture talk show with Douglas Viviani and David Cohen. There was one pharaoh that we do know that people didn't like. Akhenaten. Yes, you got it. Uh, you took the course. You were paying attention <laughs> sure when did. I did those lectures, right? That, that Akhenaten lesson. I had to prove my worth here. Good man, good man. You'll get a B at least. <laughs> <There you go. laughs> um, Akhenaten 
was the Pharaoh, as you know, because you're a good student, Douglas, <laughs> uh, as you know, Akhenaten changed the religion. They're not exact about this when, when I research this, but yes. it seems to be that he's the dad of King Tut, and the, uh, let's say yes. the stepmom would be Queen Nefertiti, who's a name that we know yes. from the movies and so forth. Am I on the mark there a little bit, or yeah, are we you're, way you're off? Doing, no, no, you're doing well. You're moving up to a B-plus from UT. This is pretty <laughs> okay. good. Um, no, you're right. There we are. It's nice to hear Dr. Bob Breyer tell me I'm right when all I'm doing is really regurgitating back what he taught me. But that's okay. That's what it's all about. And that's uh, what he's doing with us now. Uh, Egyptologist extraordinaire. He's written uh, many books. Egyptomania. He's written The Ancient Egyptians, which you want to find out what a day in the life was. Read that. And another one that I loved was The mum- the Murder of Tutankhamen. There's so much information and it, it reads almost like a Columba. We know he, de- he died, but, but who did it, you know, and uh, some great philosoph- uh, possibilities there in that book. And the secret of the Great Pyramid uh, possibly solving how did these pyramids get built. Uh, great books. The most, the most uh, interesting one is always the most recent one, we could say, right? And the, the Luxor Obelisk and its voyage to Paris is a translation of the adventure of Labah and and what he did and what he overcame to achieve that feat in 1834. Now, France, as we said, was given three obelisks by Egypt, and 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 as Dr. Breyer had just said to us, he interpreted and, and asked and found out from his contemporaries that the Western one, the, the at Luxor, the one on the right, was the one to take. It, if out of all three, this is the best one, the best representation. But then he gets there. After all of this, they they build a ship to do this. He takes his crew there. He's he's made his machinations in terms of uh, what he's going to do and how he's going to do it. In some ways, his 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 um, he didn't bring his calculator, but he brought his calculus with him and his physics and all of this and his journals and how's he going to do. It. And he gets to this Luxor uh, location, the temple, and he looks at the obelisk and he's impressed as heck and he says this is terrific and then he looks a little more detail and he says this thing is cracked it's cracked basically at the base of this obelisk how am i going to take this down and transport it and not have this crack go all the way through and bring a broken item back to paris uh dr Pryor, what did he in some ways well we don't, we don't want to tell the whole story but in some ways how did he overcome that that challenge well, you, you got it right, Douglas. You, you've been reading this book carefully. I may have to give you an A minus even on this one. Ah, uh, we're working on it. Here we go. You're getting there. <laughs> um, well, you, you're right. There's this thing about the crack in the obelisk. Now, he had been told by Champollion, the decipher of hieroglyphs, to take the one on the right because it's the one in really good condition. And when he arrived in Egypt, he had to talk to one of the pashas who was in charge of the river and things like that. And he talked to this guy whose name is Karali Effendi, and, and, and Karali tells him it's got a big crack in it. And, and now he hasn't seen the obelisk yet. He's still in Cairo, learns that the obelisk has a crack, and he doesn't believe it because Champollion didn't say anything about a crack. He said it's in great condition. So he thinks Karali must be making a mistake. Maybe he never saw it. Maybe he's trying to impress me. So it's going to take him a month to get to Luxor, you know, on these ships. They're going, they're going slowly. And finally, he, he lands at Luxor. And he can't wait. You know, he's running across the field, you know, trying to get to to see the obelisk. And there it is. And sure enough, 
it's got a big crack going from the base up about a fifth of the way. You know, he's looking at this thing and he almost panics. He's terrified that if he tries to lower this obelisk and it shatters, he's going to be the one responsible for shattering this ancient monument that was supposed to come back to Paris. Yes, he's looking at it and looking at it. And finally, his stonemason, they have brought workers with them to help lower the obelisk. They brought carpenters to build a scaffolding. They've got, they've got rope makers. They've got everything they need. And they've got stonemasons, guys who are experienced with stone. And this, this stonemason, Marcrisi's name, takes out a big hammer and he whacks the obelisk at the base and listens to the sound. And he says, I think it's okay. He says, we just have to lower it slowly, very slowly. So Labaz a little bit encouraged there by his stonemason saying, if it comes down slowly, I think we'll be okay. And and so therefore the crack didn't, in theory, go. They were thinking all the way through, or at least halfway through, where it's really, really dangerous. Is more yeah. superficial in some ways. I think technically, what geologists would say is it wasn't really a crack; it was a a fault in the stone. In other words, it wasn't like just the granite was totally granite and and then had cracked but rather some other stone, some other molten stone when the, when the whole thing was molten had gotten in. So I think it was a little bit more solid than that. So he was pretty sure once the stonemason said, it looks, sounds okay, that's how you tell. You tap the stone. Now, so uh, to the better. uninitiated, and the, to the silly, you would think, well, just put some uh, concrete in there and, and sure it up and take it. There's certainly no way you could do that and no way you'd want to do that because it then takes away from the historical aspect of it, of course. But that would not be, I mean, well, there would be no solution. if, if they, What if he hit no. that hammer and it really was a, a bad crack? There was nothing they could do. There'd be, there'd be problems. You, you have to try to lower it. Maybe what they might have done, just um, this is me, not not Apollo and Labar, but they might have put bands, metal bands around the base of the obelisk and kind of try to hold it together or encase it. I don't know. Uh, but he, he got it down. He got it down. Yes. Crazy thought. What if he just said, oh, forget this one. Let's take the one on the left. What do you <laughs> One on the left was in worse shape. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. All right. So there's one challenge that he overcame, and there's many in this book. Another yeah. one was uh, Egypt. Believe it or not, we spoke about this a bit, you know, uh, in terms of the geography of Egypt, didn't have a lot of wood. Wood <laughs> at the time was very important. They didn't have steel, right, they, in, in the, the volume that you would need to to do this job so it was wood was one of the main components and there wasn't enough so uh, uh, they had the ship uh that they had to sort of dismantle the ship to use the wood there the front of the ship right uh, and and slide it onto the ship through the front of the ship uh, and and then put the wood back on the ship is that correct something of that nature yeah, yeah they had they had all kind of, you're right though douglas you're right they had this problem with wood there was a shortage of wood now when the Dromedaire, that first ship, came to Alexandria to get that one obelisk at Alexandria, their problem was when they arrived at Alexandria, nobody had done his homework. They figured, oh, we'll bide wood here in Alexandria. We'll build our scaffolding to get it down. And there was no wood in Alexandria. There wasn't enough wood. So they just had to go home because they didn't have wood. Now, Labah knew this. He learned from this. And Labah came with his own wood. When they brought the Luxor from Paris, they sailed the Luxor from Paris, it was full of timber to make the scaffolding do everything they needed. And, you know, pretty much, and they figured they'd get a few pieces from Alexandria, whatever they needed. So they, they arrive and they have their wood and they're, they're sawing it up and they're making the scaffolding and doing all that. And they're going to get a little bit more from Alexandria. But then the plague strikes them. Cholera hits and people are dying. And the Nile is basically closed. 
you can't get any wood from Alexandria for the, for the scaffold for whatever they needed. So then he's in trouble. He's running short on wood. He doesn't have enough wood. What's he going to do? They, they had enough to lower it to build the scaffolding and to build the capstans, the winches that they're going to use to lower it. They had enough for that. But then they have to build a little wooden slipway, a roadway from the temple to the ship. And they don't have the wood for it, really. So what they do is they build one little section of the roadway. They just have barely enough wood for a section, a little, you know, like a, a, a I'd say it's about maybe a 50 foot section and they build it. And then what they have to do is once the obelisk is on that, they have to take the back part of it and move it in front and keep moving and moving and moving, using, reusing the wood. And then they had intended to open the hull of the Luxor, of the ship, and slide it in. But the problem is when you take apart a hull, you're going to lose a lot of the wood. You have to have extra wood to rebuild the hull. They didn't have the wood. So what they had to do was, and it's, it, it sounds crazy, but they did it. They cut the front of the ship off in one single snip, you know, like a sawing right through the front. They cut the prow off, and then they slide the obelisk in through the prow, and then just put the ship's front back on with pegs and nails and do it. So they were being very ingenious because they just ran out of wood. There were, there were all kinds of problems. But amazing lessons in this book as well, just like that. Always have a backup plan. Never give up. Think this through. Of course, he was an engineer, but he also was a, a really a historian in some ways. He loved, apparently, from what I see, this fellow Labala loved uh, ancient Egypt and wanted yeah. to achieve not just this this undertaking for his ego and for his country, but also he wanted to do it because he wanted to preserve. He was given this job, and he wanted to preserve this and do it right. Uh, and yeah, preserve he took this it as a great responsibility. Yeah. Right. So, and, and we have a great responsibility here on Everything Old is New Again to finish this story. We will do that next week. Dr. Bob Breyer has been uh, generous enough with his time to agree to come back next week and everything old is new again. We continue talking about the Luxor Obelisk and its voyage to Paris. I got news for you. We're touching the tip of the iceberg. There's so much more to this book than what we're talking about. Get involved with it, especially the pictures. We'll talk about the illustrations next week. It's an amazing book, a great read. Come on back to everything old is new again next week when we talk with Dr. Bob Breyer about the Luxor Obelisk. Well, this is Karen Allen from Raiders of the Lost Ark and Zarman, and I'm here to tell you about my wonderful store and website, KarenAllenFiberArts.com. It's KarenAllen-FiberArts.com. I carry all kinds of really unique gifts and women's clothing, lines from all over the world, from small studios that are things you won't see anywhere else. And if you're looking for a gift or something for yourself, Please get in touch with us. We would love to help you find that special thing. That's KarenAllen-FiberArts.com. You've been listening to Everything Old is New Again, America's pop culture entertainment talk show. Find us on the web at everythingoldisnewagain.biz. That's .biz. See you next week. Same bad time, same bad station.